Why, hello there, everyone, and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy people healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster. I'm a nutritional therapist in Harley Street, London, specializing in fat loss, gut health, and hormone optimization for busy executives and entrepreneurs over 40. Today, we have the privilege of having Patrick Holford on the podcast. Patrick is a leading spokesman on nutrition in the media, specializing in the field of mental health. He's the author of 37 books, translated into over 30 languages, and selling millions of copies worldwide, including the Optimum Nutrition Bible, the Low GI Diet, and Good Medicine. His educational website, www.patrickholford.com, attracts half a million visits a year. And Patrick started his academic career in the field of psychology. He then became a student of two of the leading pioneers in nutrition, medicine, and psychiatry, the late Dr. Carl Pfeiffer and Dr. Abram Hoffer. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Uh, it's my great pleasure. It's, uh, nutrition is, it should be at the very top of the agenda because most of our health issues, mental and physical, are actually driven by suboptimum nutrition. Yes, and I apologize for fluffing my lines a little bit in the introduction there. It's only because I've been a humble student and a huge fan of you since the beginning of time. I remember all those years ago when I came across the Optum Nutrition Bible at a lovely shop in Edinburgh called the Edinburgh Centre of Nutrition and Therapy. And I was inspired then and I'm inspired now. So tell me what got you interested in nutrition. Well, I was actually interested in two things uh, when I was studying psychology. One was intelligence, and how how can we get more of it? I thought that was uh, that would solve a lot of problems. And the other was schizophrenia, because it was the, literally the worst form of mental illness, suffered by about one in a hundred people. And the drugs really are just chemical straitjackets. And uh, that got me studying the brain; those two subjects. And two things happened sort of reasonably simultaneously. One was I came across this extraordinary book by Dr. Carl Pfeiffer, Mental and Elemental, and started to learn about the tremendous impact of nutrition on the brain. And his, uh, his colleague, Dr. Abram Hoffer, had done the first ever double-blind-controlled trials giving placebo or vitamins in the history of psychiatry using high doses of B vitamins for schizophrenia. He was the research director of psychiatry in Canada. And I, I, his results were exceptional. I jumped on a plane, went to visit him, and asked him how many people he had treated using this sort of mega vitamin optimum nutrition approach. And he said about 3,000. And I said, what's your success rate? And he said 85% cure. Yeah. I said, I've never seen a cured schizophrenic. What's your definition of cure? And he said, free of symptoms, able to socialize with family and friends and paying income tax. So I asked if I could meet some of these formerly schizophrenic people, and they were as sane as you or I. Uh, so I said, I have one more question, which is, can I become your student? And the other half of this story is that very early on in the days of, uh, I founded an institute called the Institute for Optimum Nutrition. And one of my students was a headmaster of a secondary school. And we devised an interesting study that culminated in a, a double-blind control trial published in The Lancet in 1987, where we took 90 school kids. We gave 30 of them relatively high-dose vitamins and minerals, and uh, we gave 30 of them a placebo and 30 of them nothing. 
And we hired the services of a professor of uh, psychology, David Benton, who thought we were nuts. There's no way that vitamins and minerals are going to affect IQ. But actually, what happened was the IQ went up by 10 points over seven months in the kids on the vitamins and by three points on the placebo. So a seven-point difference, which is a massive difference. A five-point difference would get half of all kids classified as special educational needs. That was a normal classification. So it was those two sort of streams of uh, research into mental illness and intelligence that got me realizing that nutrition is actually really, really powerful. Uh, so that's how I got started. Yes, and I, I think it's just fascinating. If I have a phrase that says, give your body what it needs and nothing that it doesn't need. And manipulating micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, macronutrients, it affects our brain chemistry and it affects our mood and, and, and everything in that. So, But initially, let's talk about fat loss. We'll come back to more of that later. What is actually happening when the body is losing fat? Well, you, you know, your, your, your cells um, run mainly on glucose, sugar. They can run on ketones, but they, they generally run on glucose. And if you're consuming more glucose, sugar than you need, then the excess gets dumped into storage as fat. So you get fat from basically excesses of glucose. If you have a very limited supply of glucose, for example, by eating a low glycemic load diet, uh, then what happens is you start to burn fat. It's as simple as that. So when you lower the carbs, you burn fat. When you increase the carbs, you gain weight. Mm -hmm. But if you have the same amount of calories from fat or from protein, so these are lower in the glycemic load, would you still put on fat well, if you're in a caloric let's surface? Let's talk about that. So there are these three main macro big nutrients, fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. And fats and proteins essentially don't have a glycemic load. Uh, they don't have any substantial effect on your blood sugar level. What affects your glycemic load, which is your blood sugar, um, is eating carbs. So fats and proteins don't um, do that. The, the argument has been for a long time that losing weight is simply a matter of eating less calories or burning off more. So what you eat, less what you exercise, is your weight. And of course, there's some truth to that. I mean, if you eat very little and exercise a lot, you'll lose weight. If you eat a lot and exercise little, you'll gain weight. But uh, last year in November, there was the clincher of the study, um, uh, which proves that a calorie is not a calorie, which is what I've been saying for a long time. The reason why is back in the late 80s, early 90s, there were studies that gave people and animals, two different studies, the same calories, but one on a diet that had a low glycemic load, in other words, wasn't sending the blood sugar up much, and the other high, and there was more weight loss on the low glycemic load, despite being the same calories. But Professor uh, David Ludwig and Cara Ebeling uh, last year published an exquisite study in November, and what they did was they um, took a group of a significantly large group of people, got them to lose 15% of their body weight, first of all. And then over the following year, uh, they were going to feed them as much or as little as necessary to maintain that body weight. So that what they were going to do is vary the calories, but they would always maintain the body weight. There are actually three groups, but I'll just tell you about two. 
Um, one had high fat, 50% of calories from fat, and uh, a low-carb, 20% of calories from carb diet, and 20% protein. Both groups have 20% protein, so 60% fat, lots of fat, 20% carbs, very little carbs, and 20% protein. And uh, the other group um, did, did the other way around. They had 60% of their calories as carbs, 20% of their calories as fat, and once again, 20% protein. So they're on exactly the same calories, but just one high-fat, low-carb, one high-carb, low-fat. And what they were able to show was that they, those on the um, high-fat, low-carb diet actually uh, needed 200 uh, less calories. So there was a massive difference. They, they should have both... Uh, uh, sorry, I got it the wrong way around there. But um, basically, the ones on the high-fat, low-carb diet could eat 200 more calories and stay the same than those on the high-carb, low-fat. Yes. Who had to eat 200 less calories to stay the same way. So it was a lovely study because it just proves finally, once and for all, that a calorie is not a calorie. It's not about calorie counting. It's actually effectively about stabilizing your blood sugar. When your blood sugar goes up, you turn the excess into fat. When your blood sugar is low, you reverse the process and start to burn fat for energy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, earlier we had Kane Leatham on the show from GB Fitness, and he was explaining the hormonal impacts of food and precisely this, that you can actually get away with more calories if it's from fats and protein sources than if it is from carbohydrates and and. and um, a, a diet that's higher in carbohydrates. So it's, with, with all things being equal, you can get away with more protein and fat in your diet and a higher caloric intake overall because the hormonal impact is is not uh, high on the glycemic load. So that's good news, really. If you <laughs> Yes. Well, I think the... I mean, I started... It's quite interesting progression because originally I, my first diet book was on the glycemic index, or GI, which is a measure of how fast the sugar in the food releases. Um, is it a fast sugar? Is it a slow sugar? I mean, I got quite good weight loss results. Um, but then I realized that you, you actually had to factor in not only how fast is the sugar in New York. For example, bananas, raisins, grapes are fast sugar, berries, cherries, plums, slow sugar. But that, if you like, is the quality of the sugar, you also have to factor in the quantity. In other words, do I eat one banana or three bananas or, you know, a handful of berries or, or a whole cup of them, you know, what am I eating? And, and that um, calculation of the quantity of carbs, so do I have one, two or three pieces of toast, and the, the type of toast, you know, the speed of its release, that's the glycemic load. And I got very precise on this and worked out that if you have, you can basically not be hungry and lose weight and have lots of energy on about 40 GLs glycemic load, 10 for a main meal, 5 for a snack. So, for example, if you have a, a bowl of oats and you have a handful of berries and for good health, chuck in some protein, some chia seeds or almonds, then what you've got is a 10 GL, probably less actually, breakfast. It's going to keep your blood sugar even. That means your energy is even, and it also means you're not hungry. Now, if, on the other hand, I eat cornflakes with banana, my blood sugar is going to go very high. Consequently, I'm going to produce 
loads of insulin, which is the fat-storing hormone, which will grab the sugar, take it out of the blood, into the cells, turn that sugar into storage as fat, and then my blood sugar will plummet, and that's going to make me dead and hungry. So the cornflakes and banana will give me a short burst of energy, but very quickly I'm going to be hungry again, and the oats and the berries and the nuts are going to give me good, slow-release energy. So that was like the next step eating a low glycemic load diet. But then, and this is, this is the um, subject of, of the book, The Hybrid Diet, which I've co-authored with Jerome Byrne, there's another conversation to be had about actually switching off glucose metabolism completely and switching to running on an alternative fuel called ketones, mm-hmm. which are generated from fat. Yes, so ketones have been largely in the press with the ketogenic diet that has been gaining in popularity. So what is ketosis? Some people say it's a good thing. Some say it's dangerous and the, the brain can't function on ketones. What's your stance? Okay, well, first of all, uh, the reason I, I kind of got involved in this new book that's just been out for a few months, um, The Hybrid Diet, uh, and doing very well, I'm glad to say, is that my... Um, friend and colleague, uh, award-winning medical journalist Jerome Byrne, became the leading spokesman for uh, all these ketogenic diets. And he kept showing me all this evidence of weight loss, diabetes reversal, no problems with heart disease despite high fat, and uh, even some in epilepsy, maybe brain cancer, maybe Parkinson's, etc. And I, I, I sort of said to him, you know, it's is there anything you can do with a ketogenic diet that I can't do with a low glycemic load diet? And in effect, I challenged him to a duel. And that's how we started to write the hybrid diet. Now, let me um, back off. If you don't eat, for example, you fast, you're going to start to burn fat. You'll have no glucose. You always have a little, but you, know, you, you can make a bit of glucose from protein. Now, um, muscle cells can run on fat, no problem, but brain cells can't. Brain cells have to run on either glucose, think of it like five-star fuel, or ketones, which are actually made in the liver from fat. Now, neurons, that is brain cells, if you give them a choice of glucose or ketones, they actually prefer ketones, but they, they're fine with glucose too. They can run on either of these fuels. So this got us very interested because it's like we've got a dual fuel system that we can run on glucose or we can run on fat and generate ketones from that fat. And we started to realize all the keto guys, by, by the way, if you don't eat for, you know, do, for example, or eat no carbs, your blood level of ketones will go up. That's what we call ketosis. Mm-hmm. It takes two or three days. I mean, it depends how healthy you are. I can do it in 24 hours. Uh, often the first time it takes a few days to switch into running on ketones. Now, um, what we started to realize is that, I mean, why do we have this? All Most big-brained animals can do this, but small-brained animals can't. Crows can, uh, pigeons can't. Whales and dolphins and penguins can, um, you know, cows and sheep 
and goats can't is very interesting. Obviously, it it's, um, has survival value. In other words, if we ran out of cobs, we wouldn't die. But what got us interested is it might be seasonal. In other words, if you go back you know, several hundred years and you're roaming around the place in the summer months when the berries are there and the vegetables are growing and all the rest of it, you're going to eat more carbohydrates. You store the excess as fat. It's sort of survival of the fattest. Those, those of us who could store carbs as fat, you know, survived. When the bleak midwinter comes along, you're running out of carbs. You go from feast mode to famine mode, lose a bit of weight, burn a bit of your fat, maybe slaughter a goat or a sheep or something, and start to run on a more protein-based diet, including your own fat, switching into ketosis. So we started to realize that we're, we, we actually have this dual fuel mechanism. And the ketone guys say all carbs are the devil and they're the cause of all our health problems and you should be on a ketogenic diet forever. And, and the, the sort of the carb guys say, no, 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 carbs are fine. You don't need to do all this crazy, you know, ketone thing. But I think actually... It's switching every now and again that is so fascinating. And to illustrate that, what's happened um, is that we've learned that one man who pioneered this, Professor Walter Longo from the University of California, he found that he could induce the same physiological changes that you get from fasting by feeding people for five consecutive days very low carb and less calories, about 800 calories, and not too much protein, no animal protein. This is a vegan approach. And um, it's called the five-day fasting mimicking diet. And he found that this switches on a cellular repair process, um, which is called autophagy. So when we fast, awesome, don't have carbs, the body uses that opportunity to break down damaged proteins, damaged energy factories called mitochondria, and recycle them. And then when you go back to eating food, um, you're much healthier. So we have this feast, fast, repair, growth cycle. And the big problem is that we're doing no fasting, it's all gross, it's non-stop carbohydrates, there's never a lack of supply, growth, 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 growth. So we have the diseases of growth, which basically are obesity and diabetes and cancer. Mm-hmm. So uh, in fact, on the 20th of June, I'm taking 15 people, I'm in the Black Mountains of Wales right now in our amazing forest barn mountain retreat. I've just been building a log cabin. And we're taking a group of people, um, some with diabetes and overweight and various health issues. And, and it's a seven-day hybrid fast detox retreat. And we're going to do five days, very low carb, 800 calories. And then the last two days, going on to a low GL diet. So they're going to learn how to manipulate their diet to run on ketones 
and then switch back to unhealthy, slow carbs. And this process can trigger cellular repair. It's a fascinating area. What's happened, just to wrap that one up in animal trials and also now coming out in human trials, is that if you can do that five-day process four or five times, it has the potential to reverse all sorts of disease diseases. In the animal study recently, type 1 diabetes, which is irreversible, uh, you lose the cells that make insulin. In animals, when they did this process um, five times, they no longer had type 1 diabetes. It's like a system reboot. This is one of the hottest new areas in nutritional medicine. Mm-hmm. But the, if the brain doesn't like ketones, you must feel pretty rotten if you're not having... No, the brain loves ketones. Uh, this is quite untrue. If you feed brain cells either ketones or glucose, it likes ketones. Mm-hmm. Ketones are great fuel for the brain, no problem at all. And in fact, a lot of people um, who go on to a ketogenic diet say one of the things that they get is very good mental clarity. The brain, uh, brain cells like ketones. There's no problem with ketones. To give, you an, an, uh, to give an example of that, there was a study last month um, by a man called Professor Stephen Kinane uh, over in Canada. And what he did was to feed um, people with uh, pre-dementia, uh, with memory problems, a very specific kind of fat called C8 oil, a kind of medium-chain triglyceride. I'll tell you a little bit about that, but it's the kind of fat from which you make ketones the fastest. And he was able to show two things. One was um, he could show that the neurons in these people, the brain cells, were underpowered. Um, You can actually do this with a thermal imaging effect. In other words, the cells of many people as they get older um, were not fully generating the energy that you would normally expect in a fully healthy cell from carbs. And um, when he started, he didn't actually put them on a no-carb diet. He just started to feed them this very specific kind of fat from which you make ketones. And he could show that the cells effectively came back to life. They went from running on second gear to running on fourth gear. And what happened was their cognition improved. So no, the brain cells love ketones. And if you give them a source of uh, what we call C8 oil, which is the most powerful um, food from which you can make ketones, neurons love it. Uh, that, that is that is the uh, fuel. So the argument that we need glucose for our endorphins to cross the blood-brain barrier? It's not. It's usually that you need, um, that's a kind of a very separate issue. Um, actually, what seems to drive a lot of neurotransmitters across the blood-brain barrier is not glucose, but insulin. Um, so there is, you know, there is a, insulin can carry neurotransmitters into the brain. However, and, and that is true, um, and However, what we seem to be finding in studies on brain function and and mental health is that people can function very well with good mood, good mental energy on ketones. Mm -hmm. 
So, yes, it is true that insulin seems to facilitate neurotransmitter uh, transport into the brain, but there isn't really evidence yet that a ketogenic diet is, for example, you know, a driver of depression due to lack of serotonin or so on. Mm-hmm. So we, we've got more to learn. I mean, it's a very new area, this. I tell you, I mean, there was a study uh, about 30 years ago that today would be completely illegal. And what the researcher did was to take a group of completely healthy people um, and put them on a zero-carb diet. Now, normally your blood sugar is hovering somewhere between, let's say, five. And by having them on no carbs at all, he was able to get their blood sugar down to about two and a half, 2.5. Now, if you went to the doctor and they took your blood sugar and it was 2.5, they would say, there's a problem here. You know, you've got really low blood sugar. Now, what what the researchers then did um, was to inject these people who were on a high-fat, no-carb diet with insulin. Um, Insulin takes glucose out of the blood. That's what it does. And he drove their blood sugar down to the level of one, which is the point at which you should die. When glucose drops below one, death ensues. That's the understanding. No one died. They were fine. They were running on ketones. So, you know, this was a very radical experiment that absolutely showed that our system is capable of two modes of operation, one running on glucose, the other running on ketones. Very important point here is that you can't mix the two. Professor Paul Kenny in New York, he took a group of rats, fed them high fat. They gained a little bit of weight after a month. Um, He fed them a high sugar diet, nothing but sugar. Again, they gained a little bit of weight after a month. He then fed them 50% fat, 50% sugar, which is basically what junk food is, like a donut. Mm -hmm. And they just binged. They couldn't stop eating. He actually fed them cheesecake. They were diving into it. So it was really quite obscene. They lost all their appetite control. They started to show the signs of obesity and inflammation and metabolic syndrome, you know, literally within days. And um, he showed that that combo of fat and sugar tricks the brain and that's the whole basis of junk food so in the hybrid diet we say you're either eating a diet with slow carbs like my low gl diet or you very consciously switch to a ketogenic diet in which case you're going to have to really really be incredibly low in carbs Mm -hmm. no bread for example no I can't remember the last time I ever had bread. I mean, that's just been off the menu for what feels like a decade. But but yes. So well, when you do your fight, we're going to go on to mental health and comfort eating and, and bread might feature yes. again there. But um, quickly, how do you test that your five-day uh, retreat participants are in ketosis? Because there's some controversy about the tongue, the urine, the blood, where should you test the teak and the ketones? Do you just know from symptoms? Yeah, you've got got one type of of ketone in the blood. It's called BHB or beta-hydroxybutyrate. You've got another thing that you excrete in the urine, um, which is called ACAC, acetoacetate. And then there's there's also a kind that you exhale in your breath which is called acetone. 
Now, what we're going to be doing is every day um, using a very nice device called Kea Smart with a tiny pinprick, we will measure people's glucose and their ketones. And as they start to go into ketosis, the, uh, if you're not in ketosis, your ketone level is effectively zero. When you're up to about one, uh, you're heading into ketosis. And when you're well-established, you're going to have a ketone level about two or three in the blood. So we'll measure that every day. But we also use something which I like very much, um, which is called ketonics, uh, K-E-T-O-N-I-X, Ketonics. Ketonics.com is the website. It's a device that you buy. I think it's about 150 pounds. You blow into it, and it measures your ketones. Simple as that. And it's terribly useful, um, this breath analyzer, because you can use it as many times as you like. And it's, it's, it's perhaps not quite as quantitative as the blood level, but when you get used to it, you can really see what foods, what exercise, what, you know, what habits um, do. You know, it, it's very good. And as you start to learn this, for example, if I exercise, um, if I exercise uh, after breakfast, I mean, exercise raises your glucose because your muscles are suddenly screaming for glucose. So your body starts to liberate stores of glucose held in the muscles. Mm -hmm. So when you exercise, it has different effects on uh, your blood sugar and so on. So it's really rather good fun uh, to have these devices try different things out, sort of biohack, so to speak, and, uh, and, and see you know, what works best for you. I don't think we can say there's one specific way for everybody at this point. No, never. But you've always had a, a, a multidisciplinary approach to each of your clients and, and you've helped thousands of people by finding what's the, the healthiest way for them to run their lives. But that brings us on to mental health. Now, I know you've had an interest in mental health for, for all of your career and that there's a relationship with depression, anxiety, obesity, comfort eating to soothe or feel pleasure but your nutritional therapies have helped these conditions. So tell us how. Well, yeah, I mean, it's terrible. So many people suffer from mental health issues. And, for, and so often they are resolvable. I mean, the first point is not, it's not always about nutrition. I mean, for example, depression is often anger without enthusiasm. <laughs> you know, don't get sad, get mad. So uh, good psychological psychotherapy is terribly important. But, um, for example, uh, a few months ago, my granddaughter uh, w was having quite a lot of, sort of temper tantrums, outbursts, and her, her, her mother, who's vegan, had stopped giving her fish oils. And I, I sent her a, a list of many studies that show when you increase omega-3, you get less aggression, less physical outbursts, less, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So... Omega-3, very specifically, acts as an antidepressant. Um, vitamin D is terribly important, um, especially for people who are, you know, feel much worse in the winter. Uh, stabilizing your blood sugar, absolutely critical, because when that blood sugar dips, your blood sugar goes up too high and then it dips, that dip causes a release of adrenaline, it makes you anxious, you get more tired, more stressed, and more depressed. So blood sugar is absolutely key. Uh, there are many factors. We also measure 
serotonin levels. Serotonin is the neurotransmitter that makes you feel good. I mean, for example, there's a drug uh, that raises serotonin for about six hours, um, MDMA, ecstasy. It's not prescribable on the NHS. And if someone takes MDMA, um, they feel good. They have no desire to eat because when serotonin is very high, um, your appetite is very low. On the other hand, if someone has very low serotonin, and women are more prone to this, stress depletes serotonin, lack of sunlight depletes serotonin, lack of tryptophan, which is a very key amino acid, depletes serotonin. There are lots of things that deplete serotonin. Um, if your serotonin is low, then, then you may gravitate towards carbs uh, to make you feel good because um, they actually kind of work. So if you're in a knee-jerk reaction when you feel depressed or someone criticizes you is to reach for the sweets and the chocolate, it could be that you've unconsciously learned you know, that that can give your serotonin a boost. So there are, there's also something very important, which I'd love to mention at some point, perhaps in relation to memory loss, which is homocysteine and methylation and B vitamins. So there are lots of ways to get depressed, anxious, and uh, lose your memory. Uh, it's not just one way. And you probably know that I started a charity a bit over 10 years ago called foodforthebrain.org. And we have a clinic called the Brain Biocenter. And we work with, we have psychiatrists, nutritional therapists, um, we are going to measure and find out which of those factors are relevant for the person that we're dealing with for their particular health issue. So, omega-3. So, an example, if you were to say to me, tell me in 60 seconds, what do I do for depression? I'd say, get outdoors, sunlight, and exercise, boost serotonin. Eat oily fish three times a week, supplement omega-3 fish oils. Uh, eat a low glycemic load diet, stabilize your blood sugar. And I'm, I'm a bit biased because I have a, a supplement called Mood Food, which has vitamin D, it has chromium, it has tryptophan, or 5-HTP, which is the most potent form of tryptophan, and it has a lot of B vitamins. And you've then covered about eight different potential um, you know, reasons that could lead somebody to having a the mood. I love the mood food. It tastes delicious also. Um, I really like that because I've got ulcerative colitis and I take probiotics, I take omega-3, 6 and 9, but I do find my serotonin can shift and I do crave chocolate still. So I have to manage that. But mood food is delicious and I, it really does help me. Great. So some prescription antidepressants cause weight gain. Why is that and how can we prevent it? Well, it's to do with this knock-on effect on serotonin. Uh, I mean, I do think if you, if you drill down and look at how antidepressants work, they archaic. I mean, in a sense, they're trying to manipulate serotonin by blocking the recycling receptors, the reuptake receptors. And, of course, if you block the ability to recycle serotonin, you're going to become more and more depleted. And as a consequence, if you try to come off the drug, you can't get off them. 
And uh, Professor Reed, uh, if you, uh, at the end of last year, showed that something like 40% of people who try to get off antidepressants have, you know, significant withdrawal effects. And about a third of them, I mean, they're, they're completely debilitating and severe. So we've got a situation now where in, in Britain we have 2 million people uh, basically, I would say, addicted to antidepressants, can't get off them in any case, um, because the withdrawal effects are so bad. However, uh, if you go the other way around and go, okay, if I'm low in serotonin, what can I do? Get some sunlight, exercise, supplement some 5-HTP tryptophan, which is the direct precursor, um, find a way to reduce my uh, adrenaline overload, uh, because, for example, there's a lot of evidence starting to emerge now of uh, social media addiction, gaming addiction, and so on. Uh, we're being sort of trained to be permanently in a state of instant reward, dopamine, Facebook likes, Instagram likes, you know, instant hits, coffee, sugar, and all the rest of it. And the more you overstimulate this um, reward system based on dopamine and adrenaline, then the more that depletes your serotonin. So one of the reasons I'm sitting here, the most phenomenal view uh, over the Black Mountains, it's just every day is like, wow. And in fact, last night on uh, BBC Country Farm, my son who lives next door, who's um, has rare breed pigs, he was on their TV program. So I've, I'm, you know, we're spending hours outdoors in raw nature. And what I'm trying to do now is to take people out of an urban environment and into this magical environment for a few days. We make all the meals together. It's not just about nutrition. We do meditation in the morning and learn various other stress-reducing techniques. Get some exercise, get some fresh air, and find a way to reset and reconnect and in that way improve both mental health and physical health. And I think that's really necessary to stop the wheels spinning in your head, leave London or whichever city you're in, go away, reset, learn new habits, reconnect and recommit to yourself, go back in if you must. And and that's what urban health is all about. How do you stay healthy when you're running an urban lifestyle which is designed to make you ill? So... That's uh, my, my daily gripe. Uh, so uh, you, you keep it going. And by the way, just to, just to let you know, we've built this place for people like you and other um, you know, health professionals and health promoters uh, to, to bring groups of people in an environment that is exactly made um, for this sort of transformation. I think it's it's going to be very important. I read a statistic that by, I think it's 2040, that two-thirds of the world's population will be urbanized. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, when you're on the underground in London or wherever it is and everyone's got their headphones on, and it's sort of like there's so many people, there's so much noise that we have to find a way to just cut it all out and be in our own individual space. And here I am because I actually live, here in Wales, but I also live on an island, a carless island of Kenya called Lamu, where I go for a couple of months in the winter and take people on safari. And we say hello to all our neighbours, you know. It's, it's uh, 
there's kind of better relationships. People are more from the heart. There's a lot more trust. Uh, there's a lot more smiling. Uh, it, it's it's very different to you know the, the sort of hard city life. I also love the city. It's great and exciting and all the rest of it. But it is finding that balance. Well, you can send me a postcard. I'm in Marlebone breathing in the chemicals. Uh, so <laughs> uh, there we are. Well, I, I have a look on the website because it's um, holfordnaturalholidays.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, come and pay us a visit in the wonderful Black Man's World. It's only... Um, uh, you jump on the train at Paddington. You're here in two hours. I, I, I'm I'm very familiar with your offerings, and I'd be delighted to indulge and bring bring the crew with me. So, um, yeah, I'd love yeah. to. So, let's stay on the topic of um, uh, mental health, but in relation to gut health. So, we spoke about mm-hmm. ulcerative colitis earlier and Crohn's, and I do attract a lot a lot of that crew, and. The microbiome has become a more popular topic in the press of late and much talk on the gut being the second brain and that if you have an impaired gut, this can affect mental health. So how does that work? I think, you know, we've got more, we've got more bacteria inside us than we have living cells, so it is terribly important. Uh, I, I do keep abreast of what's happening in the whole microbiome area, and, but I do find it a little bit, Frustrating. I think in the early days, what happened is that um, we would identify different kinds of bacteria in the gut, and some companies were able to latch onto a particular variety that they might have a patent over or develop a particular condition. And then there were studies on the probiotics for Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or diarrhea or you know, whatever. At this point in time, in terms of studies of people supplementing probiotics for mental illness, it's not really there. So there's a story about how important the gut is in mental health. But in terms of actual clinical trials showing that if you take this, it improves your depression. It's There's nothing like the evidence that exists for things like omega-3 and tryptophan, 5-HTP and so on. Um, so... But also what's happening is we're starting to realize it's incredibly complex. It's not just about, you know, one type of bacteria, lactobacillus, acidophilus, or bifido, or whatever. Um, it's much more complex. And then, and this, of course, I, I always found this was a sort of a strange idea. I mean, I, not because of its you know, sort of disgust factor, but we have these studies in animals where you'd have healthy animals and diabetic animals and you take a fecal transplant uh, containing the bacteria in the healthy animals, you give it to the sick animals, and it made the sick animals somewhat better for a period of time. But it, it always seemed a little bit strange because you'd think the bacteria in the gut are a consequence of the food you're eating. So, so it, it's not necessarily the bacteria themselves that are the promoting factor, but the healthy animals had a better diet, which led to healthier microbiome. So where things tend to be skewing right now is that um, what you need to do is to eat a healthy diet to feed your gut bacteria, your microbiome. Sure, if you've had a course of antibiotics or you've had a gut infection or you you drink too much alcohol, which selectively destroy bacteria, you may want to be supplementing probiotics to give them a boost. Uh, But actually, the most critical thing 
seems to be the food that you eat, you know, what you put in your gut. It's it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like gardening. Do you just keep buying your seeds or is it actually about having healthy soil? And the healthy soil is made from the food you eat. So it's a very interesting area. Um, but I'm sort of finding that the, when you ask, so what? You know, so what do I do? It comes right back to the very same principles of optimum nutrition um, and, you know, eating the right balance of nutrients. Well, it is entirely that that got me into nutrition in the first place. I suffered with um, blood and mucus all my life. I didn't really know what to do. I didn't um, feel it was right for me to take steroids or or anti-inflammatories. It didn't feel right to me. I just didn't have an alternative. And then when my mother died of cancer, I asked the doctor what causes cancer. And he said, it's the junk and the food that we eat. And that just set me off on this whole quest of understanding how the impact of food, uh, how how food impacts our body. And that just fascinated me. But um, you mentioned fecal transplants there. uh, There are treatments that offer fecal transplants. And uh, it's quite controversial. Where, Where do you stand on that? Well, I, I mean, my first—I've really got to the point now of <laughs> of understanding that there are seven essential processes going on inside us, and when you get those seven working, almost all health issues resolve. One is the glycation, the blood sugar. You've got to sort that out. Um, the second is oxidation. When we burn glucose or ketones, you make oxidants, you make exhaust fumes. Smoking is oxidation. Frolling food is oxidation. So we need antioxidants. And all those lovely multicolored foods and berries and beetroot and all that sort of stuff, um, that's antioxidants. We need that to be working. The third is, I call it lipidation, it's fats. You've got to be getting the right kind of fats. Uh, I'm quite worried about the um, vegan trend at the moment because you build a healthy baby's brain on vegan omega-3, that is alpha-linolenic acid from chia and flaxseed. You just can't do it. The conversion of, for example, alpha-linolenic acid, that's the omega-3 in chia seeds, into DHA, which is what builds the brain, that's what you get in fish oil or a piece of salmon, for example. Their conversion is 0.05%, 0.05%, nothing. So you need lipids, you need fats, you need vitamin D. There are a few others. Um, methylation, we haven't touched on, is probably the single biggest factor that's driving dementia. Lack of B vitamins. There's a process called methylation which needs B vitamins, B12 especially, uh, which again, you don't get in a vegan diet. You've got to supplement B12. Um, Hydration, water, the quality of water is terribly important. Digestion, uh, which is what we're now talking about, and absorption, uh, that's the sixth process. And then the seventh is, is what I call the communication network. So cancer is a breakdown of the communication network. Now, those, when I wrote my book, um, 10 Secrets of 100% Healthy People, this was really starting to address these fundamental underlying processes. And so a fecal transplant, I'm not really that interested because if you get to, with an individual, 
and you look at those processes, you teach them how they work, they start to improve their diet and their lifestyle, health problems just go away. I mean, I'm 61, I'm full of energy. Uh, the only thing that really has changed at all, in fact, I, I'm, I think my body fat percentage has gone down from about 20-something percent to 15 percent. I'm fit. I'm, I've got glasses. That's the one thing I've got. I now have. Uh, I now have to wear glasses for reading the small print. But you know, when you get all these factors together, you you can resolve these health issues, as you well know from having uh, you know Crohn's and digestive issues. Some people are intolerant to specific foods. Uh, my life turned around at the age of 19, having had migraines every week of my life. Uh, when I discovered that I was dairy intolerant. It doesn't mean that everybody is dairy intolerant, but I am. Um, not everyone is gluten intolerant, uh, but lots of people are. Mm. So in this journey, sometimes we have to find out um, if our immune system is pre-programmed to attack foods that could be healthy for someone else, but are not for us. Um, that that's part of the whole digestion story. Oh, but that's fundamental practice. That what what we do is just personalised nutrition and how we're bombarded with advice: avocados, coconut oil, oil this, oil that, no oil, some oils, carbs, no carbs. And it all depends on you and your digestion system, your psychology, your uh, adherence to a protocol, your lifestyle, your priorities, your goals, your health goals, your aesthetic goals, and you are a person. And it has to be a person-centered approach because you are different and the way you react is different to other someone else. So it, it, it is all personalized nutrition. That is key to what we do. So you talked about methylation and B vitamins there. We might as well throw in the homocysteine, which you mentioned earlier that you wanted to talk on again. So why don't we do that before we go into artificial sweeteners? So let's talk about homocysteine. Okay. Just briefly, I work with a lovely man, Professor David Smith, Emeritus Professor of Pharmacology at Oxford University. And what he did was to, it was his group, by the way, who identified what Alzheimer's was um, and developed the scan of the central region of the brain called the, the medial temporal lobe. Um, this is the scan that diagnoses Alzheimer's. When someone starts to lose their memory, it's called mild cognitive impairment. When it's more serious, it's called dementia. About two-thirds of dementia is Alzheimer's, but you can only diagnose Alzheimer's if you do a scan and you find a shrinking in the central area of the brain. That's what Professor David Smith's group worked out. He then found out that people who develop Alzheimer's have very high levels in their blood of something called homocysteine. This is a, 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 an abnormal... Uh, amino acid and uh, what happens is we, we make homocysteine if we lack uh, certain B vitamins B6, B12 folate, that's the stuff in greens, but there's a few others as well, zinc, PMG but basically if your homocysteine level in the blood is high you know you are not doing a fundamental process called methylation because you are lacking certain B vitamins. So what he did was he took a group of several hundred people with um, pre-dementia, mild cognitive impairment, gave them placebo or high-dose B vitamins and um, showed that their brains 
overall um, shrank by, uh, you know, 53% less in one year on the bevismans. He then looked close up at the areas of the brain associated with Alzheimer's, and there was almost nine times less shrinkage and virtually no further memory loss. I mean, this is phenomenal. It is. He then won, yeah, I mean, you know, all published in top journals. I mean, amazing. He then wondered, he didn't give omega-3, but he wondered if omega-3 level of the people in this trial would, would have a, a relevance. So he went back to the original blood samples and split the group into the third with the lowest omega-3 in their blood versus you know the third with the highest. What he found was the B vitamins didn't work. There wasn't the reduction in brain shrinkage. There wasn't the improvement in memory in the group with the lowest omega-3. But in the group with the third highest omega-3, there was not 53% less brain shrinkage in one year, but 73% less brain shrinkage wow. and no further memory loss. I mean, we are talking about a cessation of the process that leads to Alzheimer's. If I put this into context, the best drug to date, and by the way, $80 billion has been spent on drug research for Alzheimer's, the best drug to date has produced 2% less brain shrinkage and no clinical dementia benefit. And here, um, this man was showing 73% less brain shrinkage and no further memory decline. And the irony is that the British government have spent since 1998 less than £200,000 on Alzheimer's prevention research. So what I'm telling you right now is at least a third of Alzheimer's can be completely eliminated and prevented by two things only. One is making sure you have enough omega-3. And two is making sure you have enough B vitamins. Um, the way to test that is to test your homocysteine level. I want to point out here that the biggest problem appears to be that as people get older, they make less stomach acid. And without stomach acid, you can't absorb B12. If you're put on antacid drugs like um, omeprazole, this stops you absorbing B12. If you're on metformin, the diabetes drug, that inhibits B12 absorption. If you're also on certain diuretics, um, perhaps for hypertension, that eliminates B12. So a lot of the lack of B12, which is increasing the homocysteine, is not a consequence of not having enough in your food. B12, by the way, is in meat, fish, eggs, milk. There's none in a vegan diet. It's a consequence of not absorbing it, uh, in which case you then need to supplement a much higher level to get a little bit more through. So I think B12 and omega-3 are two absolutely vital nutrients to prevent dementia. Wonderful. And it is not what you eat, but what you absorb. And that is critical. And I've learned that the hard way. So let's talk about gut health on that point. Mm -hmm. 
And when somebody goes onto a ketogenic diet and they're struggling because they still like their little bit of chocolate, they might go for a sugar-free variety, which brings us on to artificial sweeteners. And they have heard that sugar is bad, so they go for uh, things with malitol, sucralose, sorbitol, and they can cause bloating, terrible gas. And what effect do they have on the gut lining? Yeah, well, there. Are, I mean, there are also natural sugar alcohols or polyols, as they're called. Um, xylitol is probably my favourite. It's the main sugar in berries, and it's called xylose. And you know, for many people, a small amount of xylose, for example, in berries, no problem at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the but if you have a large amount, and obviously this is only going to happen if you're kind of guzzling good sugars, so to speak, it can cause diarrhea and bloating. But it, you've got to be careful in this area because there are a lot of foods which can contain what we call resistant starches. Um, I mean, beans, you know, a, a classic food, which in many respects are very good foods. We know that bean eaters have lower weight, we know they can diabetes, we know there's much lower rates of cancer in uh, in, in uh, communities or parts of the world that eat beans and so on. But some people can't tolerate these foods. Same with greens. Uh, I mean, greens are, you know, if you look at all the surveys of, you know, which, which foods are always good, you know, the more vegetables, the better, the more nuts and seeds, the better. However, the body is always, well, very often, or, or foods and the body fight. So nuts and seeds are absolutely classic. They're very high on the sort of allergy list because basically a nut or a seed is trying to have you eat it, um, not digest it, and deposit it in a nice nutrient-rich manure starter kit some distance away from the original bush or tree. So nuts and seeds are inherently quite hard to digest. That's why sometimes people chop nuts and grind seeds and soak seeds and all the rest of it. So it is not uncommon that the foods we eat, in a sense, sort of fight us. But does it mean they're bad? Once again, if you look at surveys and studies, the more nuts and seeds people eat, generally, the better is their health. So... Um, you know, we know, and you'll know well, that some people who suffer from SIBU, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, mm-hmm. deal with, you know, some of the foods that I would say to someone else, eat oats, uh, you know, eat beans. If you do need to make a cake, use some xylitol, uh, for example. Uh, you know, th- these are sort of healthy foods for a lot of people, but there are some people who can't tolerate these and need a more sort of corrective diet to get their digestive system working properly again. So it's a little bit hard. I mean, I think the thing is, um, I, I don't buy sugar. Um, I don't buy salt. I've got some from my dishwasher. And I don't think chocolate's terribly bad, to be honest. Uh, you know, the sugar in chocolate is bad. But I don't think, don't think raw cacao is, is such a big deal. And the most important thing is when you start to eat a low-GL diet, you, your sugar craving reduces, and then you're not hunting, you know, for something with a sort of, 
is an, a sweetener that may be artificial or concentrated or not natural. So I think the, the main thing is to actually get sugar craving under control and then you won't be doing a lot of artificial sweeteners. Absolutely. Well, that's the root cause, which is obviously what we always try to go for. So the three sweeteners that I like are, in fact, xylitol, stevia and erythriol. And the, mm-hmm. the rest, I mean, malitol, I've had some caustic evenings with that one there. I mean, yes, that is something well, else. Well, I agree completely with you. Um, those, you know, those are the only three that I, I use. I actually have a, I'm sad to say I don't have a single, but I set up on a mission. I got all the best chocolates, you know, organic, dark, etc. Analyze them, and they contain 20 to 30 percent sugar. So here you are going to dinner with some very health conscious people, and you buy a bar of organic dark chocolate, maybe with some nuts and whatever. And it's 30 percent sugar. Now, you know, the government, even the government now tells that 5 percent of your calories, no more should come from sugar. So I set up on a mission with a chocolatier to make a delicious chocolate that would be a lot better than that. Oh, gosh. Well, can I say, don't invite me to your retreat. Invite me to that. (laughs) I mean, sadly, it's not available anymore. The margin wasn't. They, you know, wasn't commercially viable when the lady was making it had some issues. But we produced this chia, cherry, dark chocolate. Um, it had almond, um, cherry, not Marenzi cherry, very high in antioxidants. Chia, we used a bit of inulin um, from chicory root fiber, a hint of erythritol, and it was less, it was about 4% of calories as sugar. So it went from the 20 to 30% of the best chocolates on the market down to 4%. Absolutely delicious. No problem at all. So you can do it. In fact, I have a powder, which I had for breakfast today. I'm doing about eight hours of manual labor at the moment, uh, building this little cabin. So uh, this morning I got up and I had my powder called Get Up and Go, which has got all sorts of whole foods in it. And uh, it, it, I actually recently switched um, the sugar to a tiny bit of xylitol and a little bit of inulin. And also I added the supersonic soluble fiber called glucomannan fiber, mm. which is way better than psyllium. And it's called Get Up and Go with Carboslow. That's the fiber. And I whizzed that up with, in this case, some carb-free almond milk and a handful of strawberries and blueberries. And because it was the only thing I had available, I put in a um, dessert spoon of almond butter and a little sprinkling of cinnamon, whizzed it up. That was my um, supersonic morning smoothie. It's actually only four GLs, so it's very, very low in blood sugar effect. Plenty of protein, lots of... If there's a gram of vitamin C in each scoop, it's quite... You know, I don't take my don't take my usual vitamins when I have get up and go. So yes, we're we're learning how to use um, healthy foods, natural sweeteners. Stevia is okay; has a slightly strange sting in the tail, uh, but from a health point of view, it's absolutely fine. Uh, yes, erythritol a little bit, xylitol a little bit. Uh, so yes, you can learn how to have a fantastic and enjoyable life with wonderful foods um you can have your cake and eat it 
Well, literally, you have stimulated my insulin just thinking about that chocolate chia cherry thing you were describing earlier. It just sounds delicious. So I have always been interested on the effects that the food has on our bodies. And one of the doctors I respect a lot, Dr. David O'Connell in the Chelsea Green Practice, told me that there's no such thing as side effects, only effects. And it's so true. The effects might not be what you intended, but they are effects nonetheless. So for example, sugar raises insulin. So for the purposes of optimal body composition, we want high human growth hormone, high testosterone, and control insulin, estrogen, cortisol, etc. It's more complex than that, but forgive me for artistic license. What can we do to our diets to promote optimal body composition? And you've got some great supplements that support that too. So tell us about that. Well, I will say one thing. Um, in this anti-aging world, uh, sometimes you're told that you want to have lots of human growth hormones. And I'm not sure that this is always correct. It comes a little bit to the conversation we had about the hybrid diet, but there's a cycle of growth and repair, growth and repair, growth and repair. And if you, dairy products um, are designed for growth. That's what they do. So all mammals consume dairy, milk, um, for the rapid growth phase of early infancy. And then they stop. And we know that milk raises um, growth hormone. And very specifically, it raises something called insulin-like growth factor. If you, um, if you have a lack of that, you don't grow. If you have too much of it, you get high cancer risk. So uh, it promotes prostate cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancer quite substantially. And it's one of the reasons why the countries that consume lots of milk have a high rate of those cancers. The Chinese, when they went to the 1998 Olympics, they saw all these big, muscly, tall, super athletes and started an investigation. Why are they getting all the medals? Why are they so big and strong? And the answer was it's milk. So ironically, sadly, uh, there's now a, a sort of command from above, which is to get the Chinese drinking milk, which is going to increase all these cancers. So you, you, you don't want to have too much growth hormone. You, you want to have the right amount, not too much. It's the same with protein. Uh, what we've learned is that too much meat protein, too much dairy protein, too much protein overall can stimulate overgrowth. So you know, there, there really is a balance to play there. I'm, I'm a sort of uh, smoked salmon vegan. I, I don't often eat meat, maybe once a month. Um, my son's rare breed um, sausages are and they're really rather delicious. But on the whole, I'm, my diet is probably 80% vegetarian. So we are all about urban health, which we believe has unique challenges. So if you are pursuing wealth and you're busy and you're commuting in and out and you're short on time, Health can be one of the first things to go. What do our Londoners need to be particularly wary of? Well, there's so many critical nutrients. And the one thing I learned very early on in my life was that if you supplement the right nutrients every day, um, everything works so much better. And uh, I take something called the 100% Health Pack, 
I have another simpler pack called Optimum Nutrition Pack. And in it, there are three things which you take twice a day. One is a high-strength multivitamin and mineral. And the second is extra vitamin C. Mine has some zinc in it and, and black elderberry and so on. But we, we need vitamin C. About one to two grams a day is what really keeps you healthy. And the third are the essential omega-3 and 6 fats, but principally omega-3. So I think that if you're really wanting to function well, cover the bases every day by supplementing twice a day. And the reason for twice a day is very simply that most nutrients are in and out of your body in six hours. So that's critical. I think that there's a tremendous danger in city life and, and modern life to have no downtime. So in other words, we've got a mode of operation where we have adrenaline and everything's very active and speedy and instant response and and so on, which is great. You know, you can function very well in that space. But it's also terribly important to have some chill out time. And I think that's why things like mindfulness are becoming, you know, very important for people, meditation, uh, doing Tai Chi or having a yoga class or whatever it happens to be. So you've got to find that balance between sort of action and, and chill. I think that's absolutely vital. Uh, what else? Blood sugar, always important. And I personally think it's terribly important to, uh, for most people to be relatively little enough. So in other words, you do feel like your energy is dipping, uh, do have some fruits, some nuts, uh, do have a snack, something that keeps your blood sugar stable. One of the challenges uh, in the city uh, is, is constant supply of coffee. So, we, you know, it's become a, an absolute ritual and religion that you've got to start your day with your coffee and if your energy is dipping, you have another coffee and so on. And while it's probably not a terrible thing to have a coffee a day, if you are at the point where if you quit coffee, we get terrible headaches and withdrawal effects in the next two or three days, then you've, you've actually reached a point of addiction. So what that means is that you're now driving your system permanently in the state of adrenaline. Smoking does the same thing. If you quit smoking and you vape, that again keeps you in this permanent state of adrenaline. So being able to learn how to switch off and how to be connected without plugged into nonstop um, you know, communication, uh, for example, reacting to every text that comes in and you know, always attached to your email. I mean, a lot of people now suffer from nomophobia when there's no mobile phone signal. Down here in Wales, unfortunately, we have a very bad mobile phone signal. So I have, you know, many evenings with no TV and no phone and all the rest of it, but it's really rather lovely. A little bit of that's probably not a bad idea for Londoners. Well, that's where your retreats come in and they sound blissful and something that I need myself terribly. So tell us about your retreats and tell us about your products and, and what you do to change the world. Okay, I have a website, Um I have a health club called the 100% Health Club. And if you join it, there are lots and lots of benefits. I write a newsletter every other month um, exploring all these new areas. For example, in the last issue, I was writing about how you put out this cellular repair process called autophagy. There are very specific 
foods and herbs and things that do it. So I'm always exploring new territories. Um, on the website, patrickolford.com, there's an events section, and there you'll see two main uh, retreats we're running at the moment. One is a three-day total health transformation retreat where you learn about all those processes we were talking about, the blood sugar, the glycation, the fats, the lipidation, the methylation, the B vitamins. And you learn how to put it all together, but it's not just about nutrition. And then and now um, we're running our very first hybrid fast detox retreat, which is seven days. Sometimes I do one-day workshops called Seven Secrets of 100% Healthy People. And as you said, I've got, I think actually now it's 40 books in over 30 languages. The latest is The Hybrid Diet. Um, this is a very rich and exciting field to explore. Uh, we, we have this incredible body. No one teaches, it, teaches us how it works. No one teaches um, us what our body actually needs for good health. So I hope that my books, probably one of my favorite books is The Ten Secrets of 100% Healthy People. We also have cookbooks. There's a lovely cookbook that's uh, uh, probably the bestseller, which is the Low GL Diet Cookbook that shows you simply how to eat food to stabilize your blood sugar. So between the book and the websites and the events and the health club, uh, that is how they offer what I've learned in what is now 45 years in nutrition and health about how to keep um, super healthy. And I'm very grateful to you, Urban Health, for letting me share that uh, those ideas with your people. Well, I have always been a fan. You've always been so prolific in the field of nutrition. I've found you innovative, thorough and inspiring. And thank you so much for spending your time on the Urban Health Podcast today. All the best. Thank you for sharing your inspiring insights and keeping urban health and keeping busy people healthy.